So this morning we are going to be in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 9. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not have a Bible today, there should be one in a seat, underneath a seat around you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that with you as a gift from us to you today. Um, So if you guys are willing and able, please go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. This is Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. We're all sick. We need to figure that out. I want to thank you for being here. Uh, If it's your first time, my name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And hopefully you've uh, met someone, spoke with someone, and uh, learned a little bit more about who we are and what we're trying to do here uh, as a church to make the gospel unignorable in our city. Like Jenna said, we've been in a series called Unwavering Joy, walking through the book of Philippians. And so we have two more sermons uh, in that series that kind of, as we uh, file out the rest of Philippians. I think this morning's sermon is really helpful, especially in light of where we're at in our uh, national calendar. We're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving this week, so I hope you all have a great time. hope none of you are uh, um, not excited about it. hope you're all very excited about it. Um, and, and this morning, what we're going to be talking about is joy and contentment. Joy and contentment. And I think contentment is something that we all love, especially love the idea of. Like if I told you that you could wake up every single morning and you would not be longing for something that you don't have, upset about something that you don't have, upset about a relationship that's not going the right way, uh, discouraged about uh, perhaps your marriage or what's going on at work, uh, maybe your, um, the way people perceive you, but that you could wake up every single morning and just feel, okay, everything's fine and everything's going to be all right. And that happened for you regularly. It was your regular mode of life. I think we would all say, I'll vote for that. I would want that. The other side to this talk about contentment is that it's difficult, it's a struggle, and it's actually something that when we start getting down into the brass tacks of how to walk in contentment, we realize it's not something that just happenstances upon us. Um, It's a tough road in a fallen world. Now, I want to remind you, we've done this for a few weeks now, and so um, I, I feel like we haven't come back to this, where we're really at in context in the book of Philippians. Paul is writing this letter to a church in a town called Philippi, and he's thanking them for a gift that they had given him. That They had sent Epaphroditus, which is Paul's co-laborer in the gospel, and he gave a gift, or the Philippian church had given a gift to Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus brought it to Paul as he's in prison. So the big context over this epistle is that Paul's in jail, and he's in jail for preaching the gospel. And so the whole context of Philippians is this kind of wrongful suffering, like this difficulty that Paul's going through that really he doesn't deserve, at least in human terms. He doesn't deserve what's going on in his life, and yet he's writing this book about joy and how we should take joy in Jesus no matter the circumstances. That's kind of the, 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 the sunlight over the gloomy circumstance of Paul, and 
It's the context through which the letter is written. Where we're at particularly is a famous verse. You guys heard it at the very end, right? Like this is one of those famous coffee mug verses, right? Uh, if you go to Lifeway, you can buy this verse somehow, some way, in, in, in the most random of ways too, right? Like a portrait or a t-shirt. Like there's probably baby onesies with Philippians 4.13 on it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's also probably maternity clothes. Like you can, you can have this baby through Christ who strengthens you, right? Um, it's just, a, it's a life verse. And I don't want to take that away. I believe it is a life verse. But I also want to talk a little bit about really the beauty of that verse. And we'll get there. But what does Paul do here? I think there are three thoughts that Paul gives us on contentment that can be helpful. And this morning, uh, I think I'm going to be, or I'll try to be as practical and, and as simple as I can um, but like I said, I think that contentment is something that is uh, desirable and difficult. Desirable and difficult. So if you will, I'd like to pray. And I want, what I want to pray for is not that we would desire contentment, because I imagine you probably already do that. Uh, I, I imagine you came in here saying, I'd love to be content with my circumstances. And you probably have a lot of different re- reasons why you feel discontent, right? So rather than praying that we would desire contentment, Let's pray that God would help us in the struggle to find contentment in Christ. Amen? That's what I want to pray for. So let me pray for you. You pray with me. Let's ask God to do that because that's something that I can't do no matter how good I am at talking. Okay? Father, thank you um, that your word stands timeless and true. Thank you, Lord, that as we go to your word, we can find great peace and solace in the fact that we don't have to rely on ourselves. We don't have to wake up and try to find the best most current truth to try and grasp onto. We don't have to try it out and figure out if it works, but we can go to your word and know that it's true because you're true. I thank you that um, as we walk into the week of Thanksgiving that you sovereignly decided that this text would be what we would walk through. I confess, Lord, that I didn't plan it that way, but you did. And I ask that this morning would be the beginning of us this week reflecting on what it looks like to be believers who are content, not just in our circumstances, but content in everything that you are for us, Jesus. We confess to you that we long for it, but it's, hard, it's a struggle for our hearts. And so I pray for moms that struggle this morning to be content in their motherhood, to be content in, in the things that they do for their children, to be content in even the struggles that they may have to lay those at your feet. I pray, I pray for the fathers who struggle to be content in the jobs they have, for the husbands and wives that struggle to be content in their marriage, for the men and women in this room who struggle to be content with their image, their station in life, and for all of us who long for that kind of peace and contentment that you offer, Jesus. Would you help us? Holy Spirit, come and open our ears, our eyes, We need your help, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul starts here, and I'll start in verse number 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be Content. Paul starts here by saying, I'm so joyful that you heard of my needs. I'm so thankful that you sought to meet them at the first opportunity. But am I really in need? 
He says, ultimately, I have Christ, so it's hard for me to say I'm really needy. I love that Paul says that. It's not that he's trying to downplay the fact that we, as human beings, have very real needs that we experience on an everyday basis, but Paul's trying to bring our thoughts to a heavenly mindset to say that even when we have very real physical needs, very real things that are pressing in, uh, very real deadlines that are coming, very real bills that have to be paid, he says, am I really in need in light of who Christ is and everything that he has done? So he pulls our mind heavenly, and he says, I don't really like to even consider myself in need. Now, if you're in a struggle right now, this is why I started the way that I started. If we consider where Paul is right now, he's in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to get out of prison. In chapter number one, he said, I might die here, or I might be uh, let loose, but either way, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, and in that I rejoice. I pose that to you to say no matter what kind of difficulty or need we think we're facing, it's probably not as big as Paul's was, right? It's probably not as difficult as Paul was experiencing. And he looks at that in the face and says, it's hard for me to really say I'm in need. That's tough, isn't it? Like when you read that, this is another one of those Superman Paul moments where you're like, okay, well, I'm not him. That's not me. That's not how I act. I think that's okay. But what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to bring us to spiritual maturity. He's trying to bring our our minds heavenly and say we have a wealth in Christ. That there are are blessings in Christ that are hidden away for us as believers. That if we would but bring our minds and our hearts there, we would look in the face of the greatest needs physically and we'd be able to say, I I can't really say that I'm in need. So what I wanted to do quickly is if you have your Bibles, just it's a left-hand turn in your Bible, maybe a few pages, to Ephesians chapter number one. Ephesians chapter number one. And I'm gonna read verses three through 14. Thank you to John, who I I, I sent this text to him maybe like, I don't know, 20 minutes ago. So John Dean's doing our slides. The unsung heroes back there, all right? So you guys give a hand clap to them, yeah. John, sorry I'm awful. Okay, this is Paul again writing to the, to, to the church at Ephesus. Listen to what he says here. I'm gonna read verse three, explain it a little bit, and then I'm just gonna read the rest of them. I want you to be in this moment trying to take Paul's advice to let your mind and your heart to go into heavenly truths about your life for a moment. Verse three says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, keywords, in Christ, in Jesus, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's just pause. Paul says that because of Christ and who Christ is and what he has done, when we place our faith in Jesus and we are united to him in faith, that God the Father has blessed us in Christ and we hide ourselves in Jesus like Noah hid himself in the ark, every spiritual blessing is ours. Now, he doesn't leave you hanging and say, well, what does that mean? What is every spiritual blessing? He starts to list them, okay? So the rest of this, the half, first half of this chapter is gonna be Paul saying, what is the every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ? Well, here's what he says. So think through these things. Pick up the big words that you've heard in church your whole life and they have a lot of meaning to them and bank those away. Because this is what you have in Jesus no matter how difficult your day may have been. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. No matter how discontent you may feel, these are the things that are yours in Jesus, and they are indiscriminate of your circumstances. Okay, verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in Christ, in him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, in verse 15, Paul goes on. I won't, I won't read too much of it, but he says, for this reason, I thank God. So it's for all these reasons that this thanksgiving starts to birth forth in his heart. This contentment of what we have in Jesus that doesn't, doesn't change based on our circumstances. It doesn't change based on our feelings. It doesn't mean our circumstances aren't real. It doesn't mean our feelings aren't real. It doesn't mean your hardship isn't real. It just means that these things can't be touched by those realities. And so Paul, as he's in prison, he says, I'm so grateful for the gift that you gave me to meet my needs. And then he says, but it's hard for me to even think of being in need in that way when I know Jesus this way, when I know what it means to be redeemed, when I know what it means to be forgiven, when I know what it means for the blood of Jesus to wash over and cleanse my heart, to know that, that God has always known me and that before I was even born, he loved me in this unique way. When I think of Christ and I think of him giving us the promised Holy Spirit and now that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, I know that I have an inheritance that is secure and eternally speaking, it doesn't matter what my house looks like here because Christ is building a mansion for me that I might live with him forever. See, these are eternal realities that Paul in the midst of prison thinks through in order to understand what it means to really be in need. Now the hard part with this is that our contentment is often dictated by circumstances and worldly measurements, is it not? I, I know mine is. <laughs> I know mine is. I, I, I thought through like a number of personal stories I could use. Legitimately, it, it doesn't matter. Every day I could have given a personal illustration here. And it's like small things to big things. So like for me, um, I, I, I get discontent starting at around noon because I always get breakfast. And by that I just mean I'm hungry and I'm frustrated that the Chick-fil-A line is not shorter. And they are wizards at what they do, right? They're like, Seven kids out there taking cards, like, you know, do it behind their back, giving you sweet teas, like just dishing them out fast. I'm still mad about it. I'm like, why can't they have three lanes? I mean, get two lanes, they should have three lanes. Like, there should be more. I also get mad that when I choose the wrong line, you know what I'm talking about? It's even worse than that, though, for me. It's like I'm on 1960 and I'm turning left onto Westlake. I get mad if, I, if, if there's like four or five cars in front of me that turn in. I already know. I'm like, oh, great. You're going to Chick-fil-A, too. That's awesome. Perfect. Perfect that you stole that place, you know. Then we get in line. I'm like, oh, which one am I going to choose? I choose the short lane, then like seven cars go by me. I'm just like, oh, yeah, okay. Okay, then you try to like wheel over. Well, they put like bars in between the lanes now. 
so you can't like try to skip over. But I've done that before, and then this line starts going. So like that's a personal example for me. I can get discontent real quick just in my, my place in line at a fast food restaurant that serves me, and I don't even have to get out of my car, and they do it quickly, and they smile and say my pleasure when I'm angry. That's a small example, right? And then I can go even to the scope of bigger examples, whether it be major things that happen in my life, and I walk in deep discontentment, totally neglecting all of the great and glorious things that are happening all around me. Uh, one of my, uh, one, one of the things I enjoy doing is watching uh, comedy stand-up, okay? Here's the thing about comedy stand-up. I want to give a disclaimer here. There, it's not always uh, exactly the cleanest of clean, okay? So... Throwing that out there as a disclaimer. There's one guy named Louis C.K., and he has, a, he has a, a bit. And one of his bits, many of his bits are not clean. One of his bits is about uh, Wi-Fi in an airplane. He's talking about, like, discontentment in the human heart. And he says, you know, it's, I got on a plane with people, he said, and everybody's sitting there. Everybody's complaining, you know, kind of like, oh, these seats are so small. Like, the cushions, you know, are terrible. Why did I get this seat? You're sitting in the middle seat. Like, I couldn't get, you know, why didn't they update me to first class, whatever. And everybody just kind of has this air about them on the airplane. You know, they're like messing with the lights. Like, why did my light work? My air doesn't work, you know, frustrated. He says, then the stewardess gets on and says, you know, welcome to the flights. We're going to be going here this far. It's going to take this long, this many hours. And we were here to serve you. And by the way, we have complimentary Wi-Fi on the plane. And so if you just log in and, and everybody's like, oh, and they pull out their devices, they start to get on Wi-Fi. And he says, like halfway through the flight, the Wi-Fi goes down. And this person here, all of a sudden, he starts feeling the grumblings in the plane. Like, you know what? I want, I want a refund on my ticket. <laughs> He's like, He's like, 30 minutes ago, you didn't even know it was a thing. Now you want a refund on your ticket because it's, there's no Wi-Fi on there. He's like, and no one's sitting there thinking, it's insane that I'm sitting in a metal seat, in a metal tube, flying through the sky. No one's thinking that. Everybody's like, I want a, re I want a refund on my ticket. And it was just this idea that we, we are irrational creatures at times. That once we think that we can have something, we then take the next step to believe that somehow we deserved it or that it was owed to us and therefore discontentment creeps in. And I think discontentment makes its way into a number of categories in our lives. Like you can, you can be discontent about your possessions. What I have, or, or maybe the better way to say it would be what I don't have. You can be discontent about your relationships. Who is with me? Or better yet, what they don't offer in this relationship. You can be discontent about your station in life. Now, that can mean a lot of things. Maybe it's your socioeconomic station or uh, your, your uh, role that you carry in the overall family unit that you're in. You could be discontent with your image. And your image doesn't only have to be your physical image, although it could be. It could just be the way that people perceive you, and you want to be perceived differently, but every time you walk into your job or to the church or to the group of people that you're uh, alongside, they still see you as fill-in-the-blank, and you want them to see you as somebody different. You could be discontent with your physical health. Why is it that I have to deal with this ailment? And ultimately, when we're discontent with those things, what comes of all of that discontentment? Well, we can be angry, we can be frustrated, we can be bitter. We can even turn into gossips, right? So, so gossip is this idea that covetousness comes into the heart, and we're not only discontent with what we don't have, we're mad about what our neighbor has. And why do they have that and I don't have that? And then gossip creeps in with they must have that because of something they've done, or somehow they've manipulated, or somehow they've twisted people's arms, or what, and so we start to kind of, it's backbiting gets created, 
Lust can come of this too, right? Where we try to comfort ourselves because we're discomforted in our everyday life. Fear, anxiety, all these things are the, they're the fruit of this root of discontentment that we have. And I listed all those out, not necessarily just to say, oh, where do I file into that? But the theme of our series is unwavering joy. It's not all the things that I listed out there, the very things that are arrows shot at your opportunity to take joy in Christ. Don't take joy in Christ, be bitter. Don't take joy in Christ, fear. Don't take joy in Christ, uh, gossip, covet, lust. I can go on and on and on, right? But contentment, it's from the soil of contentment that these other fruits begin to appear. You see, discontentment is taking inventory of everything that you don't have that you wish you did have or that you think you deserve. But contentment is taking inventory of all that God has given us already in Christ. That's what contentment looks like. So we all have these lists in our head. Discontentment is we have this list of stuff that just isn't enough. And then contentment is all this list of stuff that's already yours. And you know the best part of the gospel is whereas over here in your discontentment category, you could start getting discouraged because you're thinking, here's all the things that I don't have. What's the next step? Probably because there's something wrong with me. Probably because I didn't work hard enough. Probably because I didn't save well enough. Probably, you know, all these different thoughts, right? Or you go on the other end if you, if you have more of a prideful bend. Probably because someone cheated me. Probably because someone, you know, someone else manipulated me. Someone else stepped over me. But the gospel offers a totally third way. It says, here's all that you have in Christ, and you did nothing to earn it. Here's all that you have in Christ, and Jesus did everything necessary to procure it for you, not just today, but eternally so. That's what we have. And so Paul says, listen, this protects us from pride. It protects us from this guilt and condemnation where we can walk in contentment in Christ and all that he is for us. And I think, you know, there's going to be a practice that many of us will do this week, and I think it's good. It really is. But I wanted to start here this week for us. Many of us will sit around our Thanksgiving tables and we'll write down all the things that we're thankful for, right? We'll take inventory of all the blessings. I hope you do that. I hope some sort of semblance of that, right? Even if it's just in prayer privately. Just thank you, God. I'm thankful for the country that I live in, the, the, the freedom that we have, you know, all these different things. Like I know on Facebook, some of you are already on your 24 days, you know, whatever it may be. And I think that's good. But I think what initially should start before all the things and stuff that we're grateful for is to think that we first and foremost ought to be grateful for all all that we have in Christ that is eternally true, heavenly minded, and often ignored. Like it's, I think that sometimes in, in our Thanksgiving times, we're like, thank you for a comfortable bed. That's true. It's true, but then take it a step further. Thank you for the rest that I have in Christ, an eternal Sabbath rest from my own labors to try to save myself. Thank you, Jesus. That I don't have to spend my whole life trying to earn a salvation that was already earned for me. Oh, now that goes down deep into the soul. And I promise you, you can actually rest in that master king suite of yours much better if you start with the former, right? I think that we're just such a rational society uh, that it's easy for us to kind of become thankless and then contentment uh, just runs from our hearts. Like we can explain why everything happens the way it does. Um, 
in rational terms, and therefore it's easy for us to refuse to give glory to God who plans everything and orchestrates everything. So if something good happens in our life, we can usually just say, oh, well, that was because, you know, I, I did this, or so-and-so did that. Or, and and in this rational society, it's like, well, that's because I have good doctors, because I have good medicine. It's because I have a good five-year plan for me and my wife. It's because, you know, whatever it is. And then there's some of us in the room. Has, has anybody's five-year plan just been blown up? You know what I'm talking about? Like, that, that happens. Your 10-year plan? been blown up, right? Your kids plan, like you were, I'm going to have children and here's what they're going to look like. Here's how they're going to act. Here's how they're going to treat others. Here's what they won't do. Like we're all good at that, right? Like making our plans for our kids. They're going to love Jesus. They're going to love people. They're going to do well in school and exceed expectations. They're going to go to college. I'm going to plan for their college. I'll have money for their college. Yeah. And now you're looking at your bank account, you're like, I don't have any money, my kid's a terrorist. I don't know what I'm gonna do. <laughs> I'm just hoping, I'm hoping he doesn't go to jail. You know, like your just prayers start to decrease, you know, you're trying to be more reasonable. <laughs> I think that sometimes that's the grace of God to remind you that you aren't the sole proprietor of your life. You aren't the arbiter of all that will ever be in your family. There's a sovereign God, and sometimes I think what he does is he allows the disruption so that you'll look to him and say, I need you. And he'll say, oh, you always have. Now let me provide for you abundantly. You ever thought how interesting it is that there can be thousands of great things that happen in a day, but let one thing disappoint us or go wrong, and immediately we're like, God, where are you at? But the thousands of things that went right, we didn't say, thank you, God, for bringing me to, you know, my job on time. Thank you, God, for even giving me the job that I have. Thank you, God, for, you know, all of these things. And the fact that, like I said earlier, these spiritual blessings that are in Christ are real for me. And even if I have a bad day, none of that stuff. It's just if something goes wrong, it's like, man, God's just letting me down. It's irrational, but it's, but it's a reality. It's our bend. So point number one, what Paul says is in the face of serious need, we can find contentment in Christ. In the face of serious need, we can find contentment in Christ no matter what's happening. It doesn't mean, it doesn't diminish that there is serious need. And I hope you don't hear me saying that. Like Paul had serious need. And I think that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should come around each other. We should say, hey, that's serious, and you're loved, and I want to take that seriously with you. But also, you need people to come alongside and say, let's be reminded of what's true no matter what happens from this point forward. We can be content in Christ. Right? Point number two, what else does Paul say? Paul then goes on to say, being content is a skill to be taught, learned, and practiced. Being content is a skill to be taught, learned, and practiced. I think that should be a big breath of fresh air for you because if you're sitting here and thinking this is just something that you catch like the flu, you can get really discouraged. <laughs> like, why am I not content? Does God not love me enough to like send me the spirit bomb of contentment that just kind of flows over me when court preaches? No, that's not how it works. Paul says this in Philippians, if you want to turn back over there, Philippians chapter four, verse number 12, he says this. Well, let's start in verse 11, actually. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned. First word. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. First thing is that Paul thinks that it's something that you can learn, not something that just happenstances upon you. Verse number 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Paul thinks this is a knowledge that you can attain through learning. And it's not only a head knowledge, but it's a heart knowledge. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Learned, once again. So check this out. What does Paul say? He's learned by being brought low. He's, he's learned by God sending him an abounding season. He's learned by facing plenty, and he's learned by facing hunger. He's learned by abundance, and he's learned by being in need. That's what he says. So what is he hinting at here? Well, I think what Paul is saying is that for the Christian, facing times of hardship and trial are not necessarily markers of approval or disapproval from God, and that we need to be reminded of that. That just because you're going through a season of blessing or just because you're going through a season of hardship, it's not necessarily that God has done this in order to show you discipline for a specific sin or not sin that's happening. But instead, these are classroom moments that God has brought into our lives to help teach us that we might learn joy and contentment in Christ. So if you're going through a season of abundance, that this is meant for you to learn something from that. See, sometimes I think if we come out of a season of uh, dark, uh, facing hunger, let's say, it doesn't have to be physical hunger. Most of us aren't that hungry. But it could be something else. And then you go into a season of abundance. Then you could think, oh, finally, you know, the, the roof has come off. Finally, the blessings are here. And you can terminate that on yourself. But remember the, what the Bible actually tells us from beginning to end. Genesis chapter 12, God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you that you might be a blessing. So I would say that just like seasons of lack are teaching moments to teach us what it means to actually face dire circumstances, circumstances of abundance teach us what it means to be a blessing to others and not to turn all of that onto ourselves. We are meant to be conduits of God's generosity and God's grace. So when these things happen for us, when we feel like the heavens just open up and everything's going right, we are meant to ask God, what am I supposed to do with this to steward it for your glory? Because I have all that I need in you, and now you've given me a lot of what I want. What should I do with it? What should I do with it? One of my favorite pastors, John Piper, he says, you should ask yourself, how am I leveraging what God has given me, both difficulty and joy, both hardship and abundance? What am I, how am I leveraging it for the glory of God and the good of others? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Even in lack, we can leverage that hardship for the glory of God by saying to people around us, to our spouse when they're, when they're struggling, to our children when they don't understand, we can say, God will provide for us. Let me remind you of all that Jesus is for us. And then when we have abundance, we can be leveraging that for the glory of God by being generous to others, speaking an encouraging word to others when we're actually feeling great. One of the greatest travesties, I think, that happens in the church of God is when people are dealing with great difficulties, the people that are actually in abundance aren't speaking up into their lives with the joy that's in their heart. They're not looking for those people who are really downcast and saying, you know what, I drove into church today feeling great. Like, I was on cloud nine. I had KSBJ on, and I wasn't even thinking it was cheesy. I was just like, you know what, enter his gates, baby, you know? And you go into church, and rather than looking for the person who really needs you and needs that moment from you, where you might be able to speak truth into their life, we just kind of come in, and we just enjoy it. And a lot of that's that individualism that's creeped into the body of Christ, where it's like, I'm going to get my worship on today. Like, no, you're meant to be a blessing to others. You can still get your worship on. Just part of that might actually be speaking life into another. 
Or when that raise comes in, you say, am I going to up my standard of living or am I going to up my standard of giving? It's a question that we should ask as Christians. You know, now that this opportunity has come, am I going to actually be more apt to give it away or am I going to say, this is my time now? I've been in a rough season. Now it's God's blessing. That's very individualistic versus thinking of things as a body. And so what God does is I think he brings both seasons to us to teach us. Some of you are teachers in the room um, or have been teachers or have family members that are teachers. Uh, We have a state exam in Texas, right? And, And that state exam, it used to be like the toss test. Now it's like, and then it was the tax test. Now it's like the star or something. Anyway, I know so many teachers hate this thing, but you have to do this state exam, uh, and they have these exit exams in high school, and if the kid doesn't pass this exit exam, it's like they just keep taking the exam. Like, they they just push them back, and so then they're like, they're stacking up these exams, right? Uh, They're they're continually, and the reason, and I understand the reasoning behind it, is they want to kind of have a baseline of knowledge for high school students to understand before they go on into the next, And sometimes I think of this as an analogy. I think, you know, sometimes as God brings seasons into our lives, you don't get to move on from that season as God is shaping and forming and molding something into your heart. Sometimes we just think wrongly, if I row this boat fast enough, I'm going to get out of this storm. And then I think what the Lord does in his grace is he says, oh, they're going to row faster. I'm going to move the storm over here. Then they're going to row this way. Okay, I'm going to move the storm over here. Because we don't want to actually learn to lean on Jesus. We just want to get stronger to get the heck out of what we're in. And Jesus says, no, there's another lesson to be learned here. I'm not only trying to carry you through the storm. I'm trying to form myself in you. I'm trying to make you look like me. And sometimes the only way that you can do that is through the storm, not around it. Same thing with the state exam. You don't just get to move on, right? I think sometimes what we have is we kind of have this like push them through culture. Like parents, you know what I'm talking about? You see your kid struggle and you're just like, don't worry, we'll help them. But the struggle is necessary for them to actually grow. I'm going to say I'm like the first perpetrator of this. If my son starts to struggle at all, I just want to jump in. I don't want him to struggle with that. I don't want him to feel embarrassed. I don't want him to feel shame. But then, you know, specifically with speech therapy, our speech therapists say, don't help him. I'm like, what do you mean don't help him? Don't help him because you're actually not helping him. Sometimes when you feel like God isn't helping you in your, in your discontentment, it's because you need to lean on him and you're not. And the only way to do that is for you to be in the storm and for God to Say like Peter, come out on the water. Now Jesus could have gone and he could have grabbed Peter and he could have carried him onto the water and he could have set him down. Jesus could do that, right? Or he probably could have done some weird mind control stuff where he went and then put him there, but he didn't. He said, Peter, you have to come. Come on the water, step onto the water. As he taught Peter what it was like to be like him. So I wanna ask this question. What are the reasons for your current circumstances? If you're in difficulty or if you're in abundance, what are the reasons? What have you rationalized it as? I'm a good employee, I'm a bad employee. I'm a good husband, I'm a bad husband. I'm a good mom, I'm a bad mom. What are the real reasons? Have you chalked up your season to abundance to must be because I deserve it? Or have you chalked up your season of lack to it must be because God has forsaken me? I would challenge you, maybe there's a third way. Maybe something else is happening. Maybe something more spiritual, God forbid, is happening. Maybe something deeper is happening. Does abundance affect your desire for more junk and a desire to experience God? And does lack affect your generosity and trust in God? Let me say that again in a different way. Whenever abundance comes, does it, does it kind of, it make, like you used to be really in prayer, like for that job that you wanted, right? Or that raise that you wanted, and then it came and it kind of affected that whole trajectory, and now you're like, well, I got that now, so it's no big deal. I'm on, on my own now. 
So your prayer life kind of changes. Even the way you talk to others starts to change. Or you get that raise, you really needed that. And so now your understanding of like uh, who exactly provided that for you just gets a little shaded or jaded. Or what about lack? When lack comes in, are you like, oh, I don't, I don't need to be generous because if I'm generous, then what? Then we're not going to have enough for you fill in the blank. And so then we kind of get a little more tight-fisted. We get a little more like territorial about stuff or people or even our own hearts. If you've ever been hurt by somebody relationally, you start to get a little more tight-fisted about who's going to be your friend. Like, I don't like being hurt. Well, I think what God's teaching us is that the same fountain gives both, gives a season of lack for us, gives a season of abundance for us, and it's because he's a loving father in the same way that we parent our children at times. He's parenting us with a heavenly hand, a perfect hand. And we have to ask ourselves, God, what are you teaching me? Last point, number three, is this. Contentment creates confidence in Christ. Contentment creates confidence in Christ. Verse number 13 says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, through Christ who strengthens me. Now, before I mention to you guys what you already know and I've already kind of jested at about this being a, a little bit of a, a life verse that people have kind of hijacked, I wanted to say this. Let's stop and revel at the beauty of this passage. I can face anything through Jesus who gives me strength. That's a glorious promise, isn't it? Like as much as it may have been cheesy and maybe like, you know, Timmy can hit a home run if Jesus strengthens him. Okay, think about the beauty of this passage. The kind of confidence in Christ that we have now, what an awesome and powerful boldness and courage that we can exhibit, not because we're courageous, but because of who Jesus is. It's fantastic, isn't it? We have no reason to be afraid today. If you're in Christ, you have no reason to be afraid because of Christ. We have no reason to be anxious. If we have truly laid our whole lives in the arms of Christ, there's no reason for us to be shaken. This is what the psalmist says. Though the oceans rage, the mountains move, they're cast into the sea. God's in control, we can trust him. That's what the psalmist says. Because of Christ who strengthens me. I think, you know, because the pithy line is there, sometimes we lose sight of what's actually happening in this text with Paul is what he's saying is, and, and if you read 2 Corinthians, you get a little better picture of what Paul's after. He says, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten, I've been uh, stripped naked and tossed out to sea. All these terrible things that have happened to Paul, and in light of that, I can face all of that through Christ who gives me strength. See, Paul was talking about the deeper difficulties of life and how no matter what happens in a fallen world, we have Jesus, and therefore we have more than, a, more than enough. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, both believer and if you're not sure, believer, if you're in Christ this morning, contentment can be yours. Now, I want to encourage you also to say, if you find yourself discontent, join in the ranks of all of those who have stumbled along the path toward the cross. We find ourselves struggling in a world that tells you that you should be discontent every morning. In fact, there's whole YouTube videos about how you need to stir up your discontentment so that that will motivate you to change and do more things and be less fat and be more cute and make more money and be more successful, 
right? Have more friends. Be the, be the good friend that you want everybody else for you to be. Girls, to not have gray hair, to have beautiful hair, to have more hair. Guys, to not lose your hair, but to grow it back somehow if you just spray it with the spray paint, you know, whatever it may be. All of the, we have a culture that breeds discontentment in us because we want more. We crave what we already have in Jesus. And, and our culture says, stir up the craving. And you know why? Because our culture needs consumers for it to go. For the wheels to turn in this culture, it needs consumers. We're about to head into a, a season where we're supposed to be celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, and surrounding all of it is the wheels of consumerism that turn. And they turn on this craving that's being played upon in our hearts. And, and I want to say to you this morning, is that craving is there because what you really long for is fellowship with God. And it doesn't matter how much junk you throw down into that chasm, nothing is going to fill it like a relationship with Jesus Christ does, like being one with Christ does. And so when we throw into this infinite chasm all this stuff that we're craving through our discontentment, we only want more. It's almost like feeding the monster, right? Think of it like a mud monster. If you sling mud at it, it just grows. If you throw more stuff down there, it's just gonna continue to create more cravings. But Paul is offering us here what he's been offered in Christ, which is come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest from that constant pursuit, that constant chase after what I already am for you. Jesus had a controversial message because he looked at the whole world and said, listen, you guys are you know, you're like ants on an anthill. But here I am, anyone who's thirsty, you can come and drink. It was such a simple invite and it made people mad. When Jesus said that kind of stuff, they tried to kill him. <laughs> it's angering to spend your whole life chasing after something that's actually right in front of you. <laughs> to say it's that simple just to love Jesus. And yet he still stands and says, if you place your trust in me, you can walk in complete and eternal confidence. And that confidence will not be based on your performance. That confidence will not be based upon your work. That confidence will not be based upon your earning. But it will be based upon the love of the Father for you that was there before you were ever born. It's incredible, isn't it? So that's what's offered to you this morning if you aren't even sure about Jesus. And believer, that's what's already yours if you're in Christ. I pray for peace for you this week contentment in your heart this week, that all those things that Paul said about you in Ephesians chapter one, they're true for you, believer. And as we come and we take of communion table this morning, I pray that the broken body and the juice, the wine, would be a reminder that you'd savor it. There's a reason there's a taste and experiential element here, isn't there? Because you're supposed to taste and see that the Lord is good. See, what you're gonna taste here, though, is just a hint of the real thing. It's just a hint of what God's pointing you towards. So if you'll stand to your feet, I'd love to pray for us as we take communion. Father, I pray for a holy moment. We're heading into Thanksgiving, and I want to say to you, Lord, my heart's full of thanks for so many things. Just the very opportunity, I stand trembling to be able to open your word. It is precious to me.
But Lord, over and above and beyond all of the physical material things that I can be thankful for, that we can be thankful for, we thank you for all that we have and all that we are in Christ. Jesus, stand forth in our minds and in our hearts this morning with your arms open wide and remind us of your words, come to me if you are weary, if you're heavy laden. The rest that we have in contentment is in you, Jesus. And so as we take of your table, we ask for your help. Give us what we don't have. If you're to command us to do something, Lord, give us the strength to obey your commands. Speak clearly and speak loudly to our hearts this morning. We pray and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may come and take.